Any other esoteric thoughts, Lee? I do have some, for sure. But I don't, I don't know if I want to get into it here. <laughs> um, <laughs> So a couple weeks ago, Nintendo released uh, the much-anticipated game, Zelda Tears of the Kingdom. And there was, th- this has been like coming for, a, I don't know, a couple years now, yeah. after Breath of the Wild. It's a sequel to Breath of the Wild. And uh, I was recently playing it, and I thought it was very interesting, uh, kind of a big coincidence, that this game ca- came out during the week of... The Ascension. Uh, it was uh, right before uh, Ascension Sunday. Um, some dioceses celebrate it appropriately on Ascension Thursday. <laughs> um, but in Charlotte, we, we celebrate Ascension Sunday. And uh, I find it fitting because a big part of that game is this uh, uh, idea of ascending. Leading up to the game, there's a lot of trailers and, and game footage where uh, Link uh, is traveling through the sky Mm. he's jumping off like really high um platforms and he can like fly essentially fly over all of hyrule and in breath of the wild um like flight over hyrule was uh, kind of a thing but not to this extent um in the first game you essentially just had the map of hyrule hyrule is the fictional world in zelda um but this game added a third dimension where there's actually a world above hyrule uh, land above Hyrule, um, which is like the the sky sky islands, mm-hmm. and that was everyone was really fascinated by that. Um, it, like this, it adds this like again this third dimension to this already big world. But what I didn't realize, and I don't know how many people realize this upon the um, before the release of the game, is that uh, a- a- along with the sky islands, you also have um, a-, a new uh, underground world beneath. Hyrule, mm-hmm. which is called the Depths. And so in this new game, you have, again, like this third dimension of top and now underneath. Right. Um, uh, in addition to the, the big map of Hyrule. But this theme of uh, ascending is, uh, is really like it's prominent throughout the entire game. Uh, one of the powers you learn early on is to ascend. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can actually like go through... Uh, solid material above you and uh, uh, come out on the top. Uh, and then even when you uh, when you encounter some characters throughout the game, I'm not going to spoil too much. Mm-hmm. I know Matt hasn't played it that much. and uh, I'm not very far either. Joe has... Um, uh, Beat it in 12 hours or something. Yeah, he <laughs> 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 he speed ran it or yeah. something. I don't know. But, um, uh, oh yeah, some of the characters talk about um, uh, witnessing their gods of legend ascend mm. uh, and there's hymns that they uh and myths that th- that have been passed down to them and they start like uh, reciting these myths and they say the god who has ascended into the sky mm. uh and you know i'm playing this like right like while i'm thinking about like the homily i'm gonna right. write for the ascension <laughs> and i was like interesting i didn't preach on zelda for the <laughs> for that sunday um but i did think that there was a, is a weird like uh intersection in culture and and the church's calendar, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, where this hugely anticipated game about ascending, uh, and uh, it, you know, came out right before the ascension. And I also found it really, really fitting that in order, you know, in order to traverse the the, the sky, there naturally had to be a depth as well. <clears throat> I found it like, again, like right before the game came out, I wasn't aware that there was an uh, mm-hmm. underneath to Hyrule, but looking back on it now, I'm like, that makes total sense. Like, if you're going to have an ascension, there has to be a descension. Mm-hmm. Um, and this is what St. Paul says in um, his letter to Ephesians. He says, he's not talking about Zelda. He's talking <laughs> about the ascension. <laughs> but um, he says, what does it mean that he ascended, Christ ascended, except that he also descended into the furthest regions of the earth? Right. And then he says, uh, the one who ascended above all heavens is also the one who descended that he might fill all things. Mm. Um, so again, and naturally, in order to ascend, there also has to be a descension, which is, um, you know, this is all to, to say that they, you know, our, our podcast today is going to um, cover the ascension, Pentecost, the symbolism behind all those um, 
But one of the main principles of the ascension is that our Lord, before he ascended to the sky in body and soul, 40 days after, uh, after the resurrection, um, it happened after he descended to hell. Right. Right. And so you have to look at the ascension in relation to his passion, death, and resurrection, mm. where on the cross he entered into um, God forsakenness, right? You know, he, he became sin. And then he descended into hell. Symbolically speaking, he entered into the furthest, uh, he entered into the darkest parts of humanity, right? He experienced evil. Um, and in order, again, as St. Paul says, in order to fill all things, um, he touched every part of creation. He, he, he affected the cosmos. Um, and so only after that descension can you ascend. Um, this is very Dantean principle, too. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, in, before Dante can go to heaven, to paradise, he has to th- traverse the inferno. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's the, that's the principle, is that in order to ascend, you have to descend. Mm. Christ did that first, but we all, in imitation of Christ, have to also descend into our own personal abyss. <laughs> we have to, like, descend into our own personal hell, like, facing the darkness and the potential evil that we have in our souls, and then we can become the the hero, right? Model ourselves yeah. after the archetype. Um, so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I've I've always like um, felt like the ascension didn't make sense in my head for the longest time. Mm-hmm. Just as as a, an event, like it doesn't seem that significant. That like, all right, and like, and then he goes back to the father. Like, cool. Like, why is that? Like, you you know, when we pray the rosary, it's a mystery of the rosary. Like, why is that such a big event that it becomes a a feast of the church? And yeah, just thinking about it symbolically that way of having to descend and ascend and how that's kind of uh, reflected in our own lives. Um, I think of things like the hero's journey, descent into the underworld to rescue your father, all of that imagery then gets ascended. Um, yeah, that, that just makes a lot more sense that way. Yeah. There's um, there's, a, there's a lot of ways that you can look at the ascension. Um, one of the ways, uh, when you look at the gospel of... Uh, was it Luke? I think it was Luke. Uh, let me check that. But where the well, apostles... On Ascension Sunday? Yeah. It was Matthew. It was Matthew. Okay. Um, I'm sorry. I'm thinking of um, uh, uh, Acts of the Apostles, um, mm. according to Luke. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, no, but that was the first reading where our Lord ascends into the sky. Mm-hmm. And um, the, uh, the uh, apostles are left looking there, dumbfounded. Mm-hmm. And the angels say... Uh, while you're looking at this guy, this Jesus who has ascended uh, will come back just as he ascended. Mm. Uh, and then, so there's this, also, there's this sense that uh, the, the the Feast of the Ascension is rooted in hope. That as soon as he ascends, they're given, a, the people, the Christians, the first Christians, the disciples, are given this message saying that he will come back in the same way. Mm. And so that's that kind of underscores their uh, the beginning of their mission where they're awaiting for his second coming. Right. And so um, there's that, that's why like when we pray the rosary uh, and we meditate on the ascension, the virtue that we that is typically associated with that decade of the rosary, that mystery of the rosary, is hope. Um, because we're awaiting for his return, mm. um, riding on the clouds. You know, that's, mm-hmm. the, that's the famous image, just as he ascended. Um, so it, it's underscored with hope. There's also a sense that um, a, a lot of the um, propers in the Mass for Ascension uh, uh, alluded to this idea that we, as Christians, will also ascend just as he ascended. And so uh, we will follow where he has gone before. Um, and this goes back to the idea that uh, St. Paul said, that he will fill all things. Mm-hmm. That um, nothing that we experience uh, in our humanity uh, was left untouched by Christ. Uh, and so if we are to rise, you know, uh, like the creed says every Sunday at the end, we look forward to the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. If we're going to experience that, then that means that Christ had to experience that too. Mm. Um, there's nothing that we can do in our lives that, again, has not been untouched mm-hmm. by Christ's life. Um, and so he, in ascending, he's also left us a model to follow. Um that's all there. That's, you know, that's 
what we believe in our faith, but then you can look at it again symbolically. You can attach tears of the kingdom to it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but there was also um, another, Matt, you mentioned, I remember we had a conversation about this quickly, um, about Jonathan Peugeot's interpretation, which was really fascinating. Um, yeah. That he ascended above all things as kind of like this um, this symbol of a hierarchy, right? Yeah, like as the, as the <clears throat> place of causality. Right, and that's what St. Paul says yeah. in our... Um, in the second reading, um, he says, let me see, I have it here. He says, may the eyes of your hearts be enlightened that you may know what is the hope that belongs to his call. What are the riches of glory of his inherent in his inheritance among the holy ones? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power for us who believe? Um, in accordance with the exercise of his great might, which he worked in Christ, raising him from the dead. Okay, yeah. Which he worked in Christ is the part. Raising him from the dead and seating him at his right hand in the heavens, far above every principality, authority, power, and dominion, and every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things beneath beneath his feet. Mm. Um, like that is right. such a sim- like a powerfully symbolic image of like Christ as the head of all things. Right. Um, as a source too, as like a, a source, a, yeah, 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 on top of all principalities, out yeah. of all all things that we consider the cause of something, like yeah. he becomes the cause of everything. Yeah, um, and you're right, exactly, and that's expressed in this image of uh, Christ seated at the right hand of the Father. Mm. Is that um, it's through Christ all things were made, mm-hmm. um, and, and that's the that's the uh, I guess a Trinitarian principle that everything that is was given as a gift from the Father to the Son, which is mm-hmm. interesting. <laughs> it's um, essentially like it's an expression of the Father's love for the Son, that everything that exists is 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 for the Son. Mm-hmm. It's through Him and for Him. Um, yeah. Yeah. I like that a lot. But that also means, I'm just working this out now, that also means that when we look at Christ's life, that is the exemplar model for everything. Reality. Yeah, yeah, yeah reality. Exactly. It's an expression of reality. Right. Um, yeah, you'd have to think about, like, what, who was Christ to be seated at the right hand of the Father? Yeah. You know I'm saying, like, it's like what, what is it in Christ's life that now becomes the cause of all things? Yeah. And so it's like the, yeah. like the imitation of Christ means that, like, in order to understand the world— the crucifix is at the top of that. Yeah. You know, like, so like Christ's mm. life as mm. one who emptied himself yeah. for the world becomes the cause of reality. Like right. that, that's such a mystical concept, but. And it's not just, I don't think that that's just a fancy, like a cute idea. Like, oh, like the world is a present to the son as yeah. if like, you know, the father could have gave him a card with a $20 mm-hmm. bill in it. That's not, yeah. <laughs> that I, I think when we say that the father's love is expressed through the gift that he gave to his son, that gift of the world is actually suited to the person of Christ. Mm. Right? You don't like uh, if you actually intentionally give a gift to someone who you love, that gift has to be um, personalized to the person, right? right. Um, you know, you're not going to mm-hmm. give. Uh, someone you love, um, like a, a model car, if they're not into cars, right? Right. Mm-hmm. You, you know the person, and when you know the person and love that person, you're going to give them a gift that suits their character. Mm. That means that all of reality, if it's a gift suited to Christ, works in the way that Christ right. works. It's a reflection. It's of a who reflection Christ of who Christ is. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, mm-hmm. like, yeah. even in, um, uh, you know, the the su- the the dying of. Uh, plants mm-hmm. and the rebirth, like you know, burning the dead wood, yeah. all these ideas that are in nature, right. um, it almost it, it mimics in a way, like the pattern of Christ's life. Yeah, it's not just human life; mm-hmm. it's like all of nature. Mm-hmm. Um, I just, yeah, that's cool. Mm-hmm. I just, <laughs> I just, I just uh, came to that realization now. That's interesting. Um, so, yeah, there's a lot in the ascension. There's a lot there. Uh, I, you know, so in letter to the Hebrews. Uh, the author calls um, uh, he he names Christ as the forerunner, right? Yeah. The, the archegos, the the one who carves a path. So the idea is that um, 
is part of one of the ideas in the ascension is that uh, is highlighting the unnaturalness of death and, and the separation of the body and the soul because Christ is assumed um, or in his ascension is taken up in the heaven body and soul. So it's weird to think that there's a multi-dimensional space that contains a finite in a sense body. Mm-hmm. Yeah, right. So it, but you know other than you know Christ and Mary he's the only one that has his body. So it's part of it is he's he's forerunning uh showing as you said father that all all people will participate in the same pattern. Mm-hmm. But then also that this separation of body and soul is something that is due to sin. Mm-hmm. And it's something that is unnatural to man. Um, at least that's something that's always stuck out to me yep. yeah. in, in in the ascension. Um, and But also he is the central causality of what you're saying because uh, of what you were saying earlier, because as he is seated at the right hand of the Father, he begins the eternal liturgy. Hmm. But in, uh, it's only, a, only until then does he become the high priest, mm-hmm. really. Um, I mean, I guess you could say the Last Supper and stuff like that, mm-hmm. but not the eternal high priest and not the eternal mediator just right. yet. Um, but I guess when when he goes into heaven and you know, he goes into the heavenly sanctuary and begins this liturgy, um, I guess I have a question of uh, when is that when the messianic kingdom is inaugurated? Because he does... Cause in Mark, his first words are, uh, you know, repent and believe in the gospel. You know, the kingdom of, of God is upon you. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the kingdom of God is among you. And then, so you could place it as preaching, you could pr- place it as mm-hmm. birth, you could place it as death, but it seems as though until he is, this is tied to a larger point I want to mm-hmm. make, but in, until he, until he's ascended, uh, he, it seems like the kingdom has not begun. Mm-hmm. I, or not, I think not I would agree with that. Yeah. Um, only, or, the, the, or the kingdom begins. Begins, yeah. Mm-hmm. And and when you know, when this this language of the kingdom of God is uh, among you, um, it's even um, doesn't he say at one point the kingdom of God is within you too? Yes. Um, mm-hmm. And so uh, it's it's very mysterious of like what this kingdom means, but it's at his um, uh, incarnation where it it begins, right? It begins, right? Um, but I do see it as the ascension and Pentecost kind of tied together right, where say. that's where, yeah. that's where it's fully made manifest the kingdom. Uh, and, and it's interesting. And in, in one of the, um, one of the gospel passages that we read um, earlier this week in leading up to Pentecost, he says that he must ascend to his father. It's almost a necessity mm-hmm. uh, so that the advocate can get, then come. Uh, which is, it's like, well, why must he? Why must he? I think it's going back to this idea that, like, there is no place where um, we can go that Christ has not gone. And so there there has to be this pattern of following. Mm-hmm. But also, uh, when he ascends, then he sends out the um, Holy Spirit. And so there's this idea of, like, uh, as- again, ascending and descending. Um, mm-hmm. And it's the Holy Spirit who comes upon the apostles and it unifies them. Mm-hmm. This is why we call um, Pentecost the birthday of the church. The church is that visible manifestation of the unity that Christ wishes that we all have. Mm-hmm. And that's where we become, that's where the church, the church then is, um, the birth of the church on Pentecost is kind of the vehicle in which we are all embarking in, in order to achieve this mission of unity where the kingdom will be fully is the, realized in Christ. Right. Um, does, is that kind of like what you're touching upon? Yeah, yeah. So I, I you know, when, it, when you mentioned that Christ, why does Christ have to ascend? It seems like, so Christ ascends, and then the Holy Spirit descends among um, the, the apostles, and then furthermore. It's, it's that uh, the apostles must carry on the incarnation, mm. not Christ. Yeah, but not Christ in in yes in his in his um, earthly life. Yeah, mm-hmm. it's like I am now going to go back to my father and, and inaugurate the kingdom 
inaugurate this uh, perpetual priesthood, mm-hmm. eternal priesthood. But now it is up to you to do my works and even greater, as he says. Mm. You'll do gr- even yeah, greater mm-hmm. works than these. Than these. Yeah. 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 Which, what is, what is these? Um, <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. You know, like, yeah. Clavin has an interesting point on that. I remember. Do you remember that? No. Um, he said that uh, he thinks that the greater works than what Christ had done, that the apostles carried out and all Christians mm-hmm. carried out, was the work of the medieval era. Um, well, <laughs> where, where, where you have like this intense, um, focused integration of all sciences and art, mm. uh, and philosophy, uh, theology, uh, everything is, um, it, it's, it shows the, it really puts like the human mind on, um, full display right. on the potential of what it can achieve to truth, goodness, and beauty. Uh, yeah, I- I mean, if, if you want to take one point of view, the mission of Christ is very narrow, mm-hmm. in, in in terms of you know, the, sc- the sc- life. Yeah, yeah, in terms of the the scandal of particularity, mm-hmm. you know, like mm-hmm. why Israel and only Israel, right? Mm-hmm. Um, whereas you could argue that the work of the Holy Spirit has been universal. Mm-hmm. Um, again, you, you know, as Bonaventure's talked about this. You know, you can't technically separate out. The work of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, but right. there are appropriate action, distinctions, distinctions yeah. between. Right. So, um, Christ's earthly ministry was in a particular location, mm-hmm. whereas the uh, indwelling of the Holy Spirit among the apostles and among the church is the continuation of the incarnation and that mission, mm-hmm. which becomes universal. Yeah. So, mm-hmm. it, to Clavin's point, um, it it did even greater things. It made a, a whole civilization. Yeah. Mm. Which is right. Exactly. Greater than. Um, these than these, yeah. You know, than like, well, just, I, I mean, like that's not diminishing Christ's miracles. No, oh, no. <laughs> obviously, well, obviously it, like raising people mm-hmm, from the dead and all mm-hmm. that. It's only, but that's all a sign that's pointing to his ultimate act of unity. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, so one of the things I, I like to highlight during this time, leading up to the ascent, after um, the resurrection, leading up to the ascension, going into Pentecost, is this idea of unity, and this is best highlighted in John seventeen. Uh, which is um, known as um, Jesus's priestly prayer. Jesus's priestly prayer. So he's um, uh, this chapter highlights what he, what is Christ's mission as priest, and it's also one of the only chapters in the Gospels where we actually see Christ alone with his Father. Usually in the Gospels we see him active, in, uh, you know, um, doing miracles. He's going to one place to another, talking with a lot of different people. Mm-hmm. Um, very rarely do we see a, a do we get a glimpse of Christ alone? And so when he's talking to his father, this is a very intimate, solitary moment where he's revealing his like human heart. You know, he's Mm -hmm. talking to his father without any distract, well, not distractions, not, not any, um, uh, you know, uh, there's nobody there. There's no mission or action that he's, um, talking about. Um, he's just having a conversation with his father. So he's revealing his human heart, his human desire. And, what he wants most is that we all have eternal life. But that comes through unity. And the, one of the key phrases in that chapter is, he, our Lord says, Father, let them be one as you and I are one. Mm. When he said that, All those um, phrases are extremely important in understanding what he means. When he says, as you and I are one, uh, he is referencing his unity with the Father and Holy Spirit. Uh, so he says, they will be one as we are one. He's talking about div- divinization, mm-hmm. um, like a theosis mm-hmm. uh, that we're all called to. And that will be fully realized at the end of time where all of our bodies and souls are um, uh, uh, you know, connected to God. And Connected is even a weak word. It's, it's a mystery of how that's going to happen, that where we ma- maintain our individuality um, and our, you know, we're distinct from each other, but we're also one, mm-hmm. right? Um. And it's it's fitting that that's, this is called the priestly prayer because this is what the priest does is that he integrates all things in creation, um, you know, the, as symbolized by the bread and the wine, the congregation, the people there, and then we, uh, you know, through the consecration, uh, the Eucharist is then that symbol of unity, which then we all partake in, and then become one in Christ. You know, and we, I think if we mentioned this on the pod before, how um, the the mass is an eschatological image. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's showing us what the end of time will look like um, as we're united in Christ. We're fulfilling his priestly prayer. Um, 
But again, uh, that that we may all be one as you and I, Father, are one. Yeah. Um, that's Trinitarian. Right. Um, we can get into what the Holy Spirit is. Yeah, let's get into that because I have a lot of stuff. <laughs> okay. Um, so <laughs> this is not yeah. going to be a four-hour podcast. Let, let me. Um, let's start with Gestalt. Um, so we talked about this before. The definition of Gestalt being an organized whole that is perceived as more than the sum of its parts. Right. So that's mm-hmm. that's what that word means. Um, it's a psychological term, and it's kind of like a mystery to uh, scientists as to how we can perceive things apart that's, from chaos. That's um Peugeot's analogy of the glass. Yes. Do you remember that? Right. Yeah. 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 With I think it was Douglas Murray and, mm-hmm. and Peterson. Peterson. Yeah. 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 That's so, right. but so how like how do we differentiate you know things from just the chaos they dwell in? Yeah. Um, so we perceive things as unity. Technically, it's all multiplicity, right? So there's some sort of jump that our uh, cognition does in order to identify something yeah. as a singular singular thing. Um, and that's called the gestalt, right? To gestalt something. Um, that's a German word for geist, which is ghost, right? So it's, it's related to spirit um, and essence of something. So how is it that we're scientifically or cognitively seeing multiplicity to like, you know, um, opposing like, you know, billions of molecules, but then identifying it's geist, mm. it's ghost, right? So it's, yeah. it's unity and it's identifiable thing. Um, sounds like the problem of the one and the many. Yes. Um, that's essentially what it I was, is. Yeah. I was going to say, it sounds like the problem of essence. Well, yeah. But does right. does yeah. your mind, because this is, I think the fundamental epistemological problem mm. is do we know essences or do we not? Mm. Do you know forms or do you not? Right. Yeah. Is that like right. Kant, like where he's like the uh, thing in itself? Like, the, is that yeah? Because there's a big term? there's a big turn towards because uh, certainly medievals and scholastics said yes, this is, like okay. you, you're because the, the the jump that you're talking about mm-hmm. is the jump from the so-called uh, internal powers to the immaterial powers. Mm-hmm. So there's the powers that basically use your brain, mm-hmm. and then there's this intellectualization that is not quite dependent upon your brain, they would right. say. Interesting. But that, it was, see, and if that's true, mm-hmm. this is sort of where consciousness comes in mm-hmm. and, and the idea that uh, even if you're brain dead, you might still mm-hmm. be able to, to think and such. Um, the reason why maybe science can't account for that because it, it isn't quite using your brain. It yeah. needs your brain, mm-hmm. right. but it doesn't quite use it. But anyway, um, that's the power that grasps this thing. Yeah, right. Um, but yeah, it, and that, I mean, even that's the nature yeah. of consciousness as like more than the sum of its parts. They're the yeah. gestalt to yeah. our consciousness, which then perceives gestalts. Right. You know yeah. what I'm saying? So again, yeah. this is like tying into like Christ ascending as the causality of the, the world. Like this is like fundamentally how the world exists and how we exist. Well, this is, I remember in philosophy, um, there was a point made by either the professor or one of our students in the conversation that um, – this is actually a Thomistic principle. I think it's Thomistic. Maybe Aristotelian. It's a principle in philosophy. Uh, Who's to that, say the difference? Right. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, Thomas. Um, no, uh, exactly what you said, that the, the sum is greater than the, um, than the parts. Mm-hmm. Is that right? The whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Yes. Yeah, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Mm-hmm. Um, mathematically or scientifically, um, that doesn't make any sense, right? It's like if you have like this multiplicity of things Mm -hmm. you know if you have a car right you have the wheels and the engine the platform the doors whatever um all those parts why does it make a new thing right Right. like the emergence of that Mm -hmm. uh you know one like in a certain sense like when you add up all the things you should just have the sum of its parts but to say that the whole is greater right um to say a car is just engine plus wheels plus door, et cetera, plus paint, um, would be to omit something like the experience of the car. Yes. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like, exactly. this is the means that I take my kid to school and we have conversations. Like, it becomes a, a part of your life yeah. that is more than the sum of its parts. Right. Um, and you can't account for that scientifically. Yeah, yeah, If exactly. you say it's just this, you've already reduced, you got rid of the gestalt. Right. <laughs> Kill the ghost. Yeah. And that's, I mean, that's most problematic when you do that with humans. Like, we're just like, yes. um, you know, blood and organs mm-hmm. and bones and like right. you know like like you can't reduce people mathematically or right. else you end up with a mass murder <laughs> you know well so yeah so. we like 
religious people have been making that argument with people and consciousness and souls yes. and stuff forever. Yeah. But it's interesting how it's starting to show up in cognitive science. Like we can't even perceive anything yeah. without this type of emergence. This is Verveke's term. He calls it emergence, like something that becomes apart from the yeah. sum of its parts. Yeah. What is that? Our, um, uh, Aquinas would say that that's actually um, one of the three conditions for beauty mm. is that the thing is actually uh, uh, has its own integrity apart from other things. Um, and so we even see the transcendentals within this idea of unity yeah, mm -hmm. within a certain object. So anyway, yeah, so, keep going. So the Holy Ghost, called the Holy Gestalt, <laughs> um, <laughs> um, as as the essence or the the unity of the Father and the Son, yeah. right? Um, Christ wants us to be filled with that gestalt, to participate in that gestalt. And mm -hmm. so he has to send that gestalt down yeah. after he ascends to the Father. Yeah. And so that's the whole idea is that he's going to fill the world with the thing spirit that is that more... Yeah, yeah. It's the spirit that binds them and is more than the sum of its parts. Yeah. And that sets the world on fire. Yeah, exactly. That's... um. I never thought about that in, in terms of the cog-sci um, aspect. I remember Peterson gave a great lecture on the Bible at Franciscan University, um, and he spent the entire lecture really talking about this idea. Um, he said this is the fundamental wall that people are coming up against with AI, mm. um, is that you can't really – it doesn't know how uh, – uh, 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 an autonomous mechanism mm – -hmm. um, that is man-made does not know how to perceive things and what to pay attention to because you have billions of pieces of information. The way he was um, uh, relating that to the Bible is that like, you know, as a um, people, we have decided what books to pay attention to and which ones not to, right? Which yeah. is really interesting. Like that's mm -hmm. almost um, a mystery. Like why do we say that this book is more important than that book? Um, the Bible as a collection of books, right? Mm -hmm. and, and saying, like, this best expresses the human experience. It's like, but why? Like, what is it about this singularity among the multiplicity of books? Anyway, yep, yep. going back to um, the Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, we uh, Just to get into some Trinitarian theology, because it's, it's very, I find it very fascinating. Mm -hmm. uh, the, we say that the, the Holy Spirit is the love shared between the Father and the Son. Uh, at their heart... These names that we have for the Trinity are relational. Uh, you know, we don't uh, call the Father um, the One. Mm -hmm. You know, we don't call the Son. Uh, you know, the um, the the Redeemer. Right. Right. Uh, Father and Son get at the heart of who they are. And as these names are, the the reason why they're relational is because fundamentally, the way you define Father is that uh, a person who has an offspring. Mm -hmm. Without the offspring, there is no father, right? Um, same thing with the son. You cannot have a son without a father. Like so, their their names are integrated within each other, um, and that bond is transcendent, right? It, it's greater than almost themselves, and that's what we mean by the Holy Spirit. There's some medieval thinker. I can't remember his name. I can't remember his name. Um, <laughs> but he said that just by mentioning one name, you imply all three, right? You say the right. father. That implies that he has an offspring, and that implies that they share a bond together, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Uh, and so that's the way to understand the Trinity is that it's, it's, it's this unity of love that has distinct parts. Mm. Right. Yeah. Yep. So and, and then so that that like to, so so to say I will send the Holy Spirit as Christ saying I will send the Holy Spirit He's saying I will send the very bond that I share with my Father to make you one so that you mm -hmm. can be one in me. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> so working off that and your your Gestalt point um, about the Spirit by being the animating principle, um, one line from the Ascension. I'm going to tie the Ascension to the Pentecost. That was interesting was uh, this line that says, when they saw him, they worshiped, but they doubted. Mm. This, you know, there's some lines in scripture, yeah. they just like kind of, they just Throw like write there. it and <laughs> they just drop it. And there's no more explanation, but it's it's weird. You know, they worshiped, but they doubted. Uh, I guess there's a little bit of a Greek grammar debate about who doubted, because mm. apparently some translations of the Bible have this, but ours have they doubted, but it's actually, but some doubted. Oh, interesting. And 
I was thinking about that because, you know, they apparently it was just the apostles. I guess I think maybe Matthew has more. It's like the apostles and disciples. But, you know, apparently these people had seen a lot. You know, they had seen many miracles. Mm-hmm. They'd seen him die. They'd seen him uh, resurrect and then live among them and then perform more miracles. And so it seems odd that they would have doubted. But I think part of the ascension is that their faith is really in the f- the physical person of Christ as the physical oh. ma- as the physical messiah right and so their faith actually technically isn't perfected until the pentecost yeah, until exactly. pentecost because at this point right. they're believing in him yeah he even says this mm-hmm. to to um uh thomas mm-hmm. like you see me or you believe in me because you see me yeah mm. but believe in the one who sent me but believe in yeah. the one who sent me yeah. so i think there's t- this time where it's like as the messiah i have to leave because um in Luke, or in Acts of the Apostles, it records the conversation that he has before he sends, which is, are you going to establish the kingdom of Israel now? Mm-hmm. Are you going to mm-hmm. restore the kingdom of Israel? So they're already still thinking about this physical place. They're thinking about this this Interesting. more warrior messiah, and it's like, okay, so I have to get out of here, because you, you're some of you are still not quite getting it. Mm-hmm. Um, some of you get it, apparently, mm-hmm. but some of you don't. <laughs> yeah. So it's not really until this this indwelling of the Holy Spirit that they understand exactly, I, I think. Yeah, I, I, no. that might be mm-hmm. might be <laughs> a heretical opinion. But no, no I, yeah, that's yeah. definitely... Yeah. So the image I'm thinking of is like uh, when you have a light bulb moment Yeah, and you have all these multiplicity of facts and you don't know what the gestalt of it is. Like, I, I get this. Like, you're trying to get the gist of something. Mm-hmm. That's where that word comes from. Um, and so when you when it clicks... You have a flame on top of your head. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, no, right. No, well, I, I, I think it's like they, again, like they, they're in, they believe in the person of Christ and it's not until this animating mm-hmm. principle, the, you know, the Holy Spirit yep. comes in, the, it comes within them and they realize, oh, th- this is, now yep. I have the full picture Yeah. Mm-hmm. or I, I see the pattern, whatever it is, now I can actually go. Which is, you know, that's, that's very interesting because it's not until the, the descent of the Holy Spirit at Pentecost where they actually start proclaiming from the rooftops. Before that, they, I think part of their, um, uh, uh, part of them being timid to share the gospel was that they didn't themselves understand what they were sharing. Mm-hmm. They're like, okay, so Jesus rose from the dead. What does that mean for people? Like, what does that mean for everybody? Mm-hmm. You know, like, and, and they still had to get that gestalt moment. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, I like that uh, that image of the light bulb on top of their heads, but and, and the flame too, uh, symbolic of passion. Yeah, it's like once you get something. You have to share it, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so, like, I think once the Holy Spirit descended and the apostles were illuminated with this new idea, um, seeing Christ's mission anew, uh, it's like we have to, like, this is what the world is about, you know? Um, right. So, yeah, that's 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 really interesting. Well, it, uh, just to touch on your unity point before that is it's not really, again, I could be wrong, but it's not really until the Holy Spirit comes down that they are one. Mm-hmm. With Christ, mm-hmm. right? Yeah, or like the um, or like it gathers. I guess in, in a, at a deeper level, because they are his followers, yep. they are his apostles, yeah. they do follow his teachings. But now, the I feel like there's this greater animation and unity. Because so is, yeah. is the church yeah. is the church a representation of like the new temple? Yeah, I, I think that's or one. like the new like, like Mount that. Sinai, like the yeah. place where God comes down. Yeah, and so if that's going to actually happen, then. Pentecost being the birthday of the church means that, like, they're now unified into one and, like, heaven and earth have actually met. This yeah. is the indwelling place of God now. Yeah, because yeah. the way I've heard the Holy Spirit, one of the ways it's described is that the Holy Spirit is the, is the soul of the church. Mm-hmm. So you have the body of, you know, the people that's, that, that are there, but it's not alive and animated until you have these, this soul yep. added to it. Yes, and that, that's why in, in Acts of the Apostles it's interesting when they come upon people— um, who, when they come upon people who are not yet Christians, um, they ask, um, "Have you been baptized in the Holy Spirit?" Mm-hmm. And and Luke makes it an interesting point in the Acts where he says, um, "Some have been baptized um, with the baptism of John," and so there there needs to be a rebaptism. Mm-hmm. Um, and and the letters of John um, express this too that like uh, we believe that. Um, he came, uh, our Lord came in fire, what is it, fire, water, and blood, I think. 
um, are like the three elements mm-hmm. <laughs> elements um, in which we're to unify all people that the church uses to unify. Um, but and so there is a real sense that at Pentecost they had to go out and actually baptize in in Christ's name in order for that unity to take place. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah. And well, this is yeah, and like there's kind of like whenever you see conversions in the Acts of the Apostles, um, Luke makes it a point to say they were baptized, right? And so there was a, a real action um, and tangibility to this unity that had to take place. It wasn't just believe, mm-hmm. you know, everyone's uni- unified because our Lord wills it. Like they they had to, you know, get their hands dirty, as it were, yeah. and go out. Uh, that's so. at the end of uh, Matthew's Gospel from the Ascension: is go and make. Disciples of all nations, yeah, baptizing yeah. them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, yeah. and teaching them. So, like you said, do do doing something, right? Yeah, getting their hands dirty. Yep. Um, I'm going to go on a little rant just to like spark some more ideas. So interject when you feel like I'm just totally off. Okay. Um, I've been thinking about this for about a year now, uh, since last Pentecost. Um, I had COVID during that time, so I was like in feverish. I was having fever dreams about. The Holy Spirit. <laughs> um, I went to Mass, and I was looking at the candles and thinking about how the apostles on Pentecost had flames, tongues of fire above their head. And I was like, that seems like interesting candle imagery. And I, we mentioned this in a previous podcast a long time ago about the symbolism of candles. Um, but I wanted to tie that in a little bit and talk about Pentecost and how the Holy Spirit fits into that concept. So. Candles are made of wax, right? The wax comes from, uh, the wax is the, um, technically the, like the honeycomb that the, the honey goes into in a, in a beehive, right? So it's actually like the capsule or the, the body in which the honey comes down. So it is this kind of like feminine figure as the frame. Um, and then the honey mixture is a saliva enzyme with pollen, which is kind of like you know, something coming from above, from the mouth, from the head, um, into a container. Um, So the candle sits as kind of a symbol of the church, right? Christ's body. And the flame is Christ, right? Christ is the light of the world. Um, Again, the body, uh, the church, Mary also represents um, as an image of the church. So Mary as feminine, um, and Christ as wisdom itself, Mary as the seat of wisdom. Like mm-hmm. you have all these parallel things happening, like church, Mary, feminine, body, fire, head, top. Yeah. Right? Does that make sense? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Just interesting imagery. So I was like, all right. So how does how does this relate to Pentecost? And where's the Holy Spirit in this idea of the of Christ and the church? And then I read poetic diction. <laughs> um, this is Owen Barfield. Mm-hmm. And he has, he talks about how the, you know, way back when, um, the way we used to speak was more symbolic and the words we would use uh, were, they were like all encompassing. They would mean different things and they would be symbolic as almost like portals to other ways of knowing. Way back when, when? Like <laughs> Greek times. Ancient yeah, times. Ancient, ancient okay. times. Yeah, okay. thank you. Greeks still live. <laughs> um, yeah. that's not the Greeks were not the only ones. <laughs> yeah. but, no, typically when we say ancient. Yeah, so language yeah. in ancient times was more symbolic and almost um, like collective in the way it would describe things. And the word he uses as an example, it's like a key example. If you talk about Owen Barfield, you use this example is pneuma. The Greek word for pneuma is um, wind, spirit, and breath. Okay. Um, so in thinking about this candle imagery as like, okay, so... The church and the flame on top as Christ, where's the Holy Spirit? The Holy Spirit is the oxygen in which the light is lit, Mm. right? Mm -hmm. So the apostles having tongues of fire on their head, they are are essentially the wax candles, like the church, the body, the frame in which the the light is going to descend, but the Holy Spirit must fill the space in order for that to happen. And then the gestalt happens, right? So that is, that's the idea of the spirit and the wind and the breath. Um, there's another interesting idea of, um, like the, the etymology of gist is actually not um, geist, like ghost. It's actually, it means a resting place. 
It's from, I think it's French. Um, related to Gestalt, though? Related to Gestalt in, in this, like, essence and, like, place where something sits or, like, the, the essence of something. So, okay. yeah, one of, the, one of the etymological definitions is, like, an essence of something, but a place where something sits. Um, and just reminded me of this, of Genesis 1-2. Right, like the the earth was without form or shape, uh, and the spirit of God was hovering mm. above the waters. Right, so we have this spirit resting over the multiplicity. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's almost as if the spirit must rest upon. Like, if you're going to think about the candle imagery, the the spirit must rest upon that spot. There must be air there. There must be a spirit there in order for the light to set that aflame. Mm. Right. And so it's it's like the birthday of the church is like that completion of the new creation where the spirit hovers above the multiplicity and then Christ comes down as the light and sets everything up. Mm. Does that make sense? Yes. So that's super like I'm still like trying to like formulate this into like Well, it's a something. lot of it's a lot of symbols that I think are connected and I think those are insightful connections. Do birthday candles work like that? Yes, I actually. So. Well, yeah. because well, I mean, if you really want to get into it, the idea that no, you're, but like, right, you're giving like you're somebody burned. you're born Yes. And so, like, you have become a singular person. Well, well, so the thing is, like, okay, so bread and, like, cakes and pastries, like, used in celebration is, like, a symbolism of meaning, of, yeah. like, uh, grain and, and water mixed together, heaven and earth, you know, like, meaningful life, to right? intentionally yeah, yeah. make something So you out celebrate of, that yeah. thing in the, in the um, idea of bread yeah. or pastries or such, such. So cake is that symbolism. But then the candle is, like... We're celebrating you as an essence, yeah. like the gestalt of you, and not right. just the fact that you were born. It's bigger than that. So yeah. we, we put candles on the cake. <laughs> <laughs> so the apostles are birthday candles. Yes. Um, yeah. That's why, I mean, that's Pentecost is the birthday of the church. Yeah, like, yeah. It's all in there. Like, yeah. This is like, like if you're going to take the idea that Christ ascended into heaven and becomes the pattern for the world seriously, yes, Pentecost is in birthday cake symbolism. Yeah. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, that, right. That, that, that makes sense. And and in the um in the story of Pentecost, uh, we even uh, you know the lang- that same language is used is that there was a great wind that rushed through. Yeah. Um, yeah. Right. That's another translation is that um, a mighty wind sweeping above the waters. Yeah. As opposed to God's spirit hovering. Right. It's the same type of meaning. Right. Right. And 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 that does shed light on Genesis one two where you have, uh, like again the spirit of unity which. If again, if, like you said, like Christ is the pattern for all things, um, we can understand that even in a more abstract sense of like the Trinity, God Himself, mm-hmm. everything flows from that. And so, to say that the the earth was formless until, um, and then the the Spirit sitting upon that to give it meaning and to 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 unify it is is that same Spirit that unifies the Father and Son right. into all things. Right, started with the creation mm-hmm. of the world. But then even even down to our particular lives where we see this is this is exactly this is exactly why we pray to the Holy Spirit for inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, inspire f- actually comes from that inspiro, like to breathe in. Right. Yeah. Well, right. And 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 at first it may seem like, okay, why the Holy Spirit? Like, for example, if if I have to do well on a test, why do I pray to the Holy Spirit? Mm-hmm. I think it's because if the Holy Spirit is this the personification of unity, unity, then anything that you achieve that is good should act towards that goal of unity, right? Mm-hmm. And so, doing well on a test, um, you know, doing well in sports, uh, whatever it might be, any good, like you're writing a piece of music or mm-hmm. like like Holy Spirit, help me with whatever you have to do. If it's for the good then it's only going to bring you and others closer to God. And that's unity, right? right? Um, so I, if I think that's... There's also uh, a sense in which, like, you're trying... If you're, like, studying for a test and you pray for the Holy, to the Holy Spirit for um, knowledge and understanding, yeah. you're asking for the Geist. Yeah. Like, let me get the gist of what I'm about to experience as, as it relates to the pattern of reality. Yeah, exactly. And so you're asking for, like, the Holy Geist to reveal to you a fractal Geist. Yeah. So that yeah, yeah, yeah. it's yeah. completely connected. Exactly. Um, that's like, I mean, back to our previous episode, we were talking about Charlotte Mason. Her motto is not the one we were talking about. Another thing she says um, is education is an atmosphere, mm. right? So a spirit, a wind, yeah. um, an air in which 
we have gestalts, right? And so like, it's more than the sum of its parts. She also says that, you know, education is primarily coming from the Holy Spirit. Like yeah. She says that like explicitly. Interesting. Um, I don't think she makes that connection to atmosphere and Holy Spirit, but it's definitely there. Yeah. Um, but it's her point is that it's actually more than just doing the things. And she's saying like when you educate your children, you can't just tell them to appreciate literature. You have to appreciate literature. And your house has to have the atmosphere in which you appreciate literature. And then they get, they intuit the gestalt, mm-hmm. right? They don't, they don't just do the things because then it's, it's more than the sum of its parts. It's more than just the curriculum. It has to be the environment in which they rest in. Yeah. 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 That's very interesting. Yeah. So it's all there. Cake and education. Pentecost. <laughs> <laughs> but then you blow out the candles on your birthday to symbolize one day or one year closer to death. Dang. Yes. <laughs> no, like it's that. true. Yes. No, it is right? true. Yeah. And then through death, you have life. And then you eat yeah. the cake. And, yeah. I don't, no, I don't, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, there, there, yeah, there is a lot more we can say. I didn't even get into um, Exodus at Reditus, this idea of um, out from God, back to God, right? Mm. And so, you know, the Father sends the Son. The Son sends the Holy Spirit. The church is then... Um, you were motioning? No. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Wrap it up. No, <laughs> the church then unifies all people to bring them back to Christ who brings them back to the Father. So it's like great, exitus et reditus, Latin for out of God, back to God, mm-hmm. um, or out and in. Um, so Some, um, something in return. Something that Peugeot mentioned too was that um, like how, how the Pentecost relates to like multiplicity is that... Uh, this is the way that multiplicity gets unified into unity, right? And so through the church, through the church, yeah. right? Like this is how Christ fills all things, and multiplicity and unity can coexist. Like this is how the one and the many are resolved yeah. in in Christ. Um, and he was saying how something something like the Tower of Babel seems like an anti-story of Pentecost. Yeah, and that is. this attempt to create a unity like unto yourself without knowing its origin, um, it leads to a multiplicity. That there's chaos. You know what I'm saying? Like it, so the multiplicity and unity thing, unity thing is going to happen, but there's no coherence. Right, because if the idea is, right, it, it's Christ who leads us to the Father. And mm-hmm. in, in Babel, they're trying to reach God without God's help. Right. Right. They want to build a tower to the heavens by manpower alone. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you do those things without Christ, you just, it becomes chaotic. Right. You know, um, this is like, um, this is like uh, the worst form of humanism. Mm-hmm. Uh, where it's like, well, we're working for one world order, right? You, you know, you think about like these, these mm-hmm. dystopian images of totalitarianism. All that is only going to lead to suffering mm-hmm. um, because man cannot be God. Like that's just the, that's right. the, you know, that's the top down principle. Right. But in the story of Babel, we see like as they're working together, um, they are, they become more divided against right. each other. Right. And that seems like a cosmological pattern um, until Christ Renews all things. Yeah. Right. And like you were saying, like now, now creates a unity in which multiplicity can exist. Well, and, and in Babel, it's really interesting because Babel is really the perfect foil for um, Pentecost or Pentecost is a perfect foil for Babel, mm-hmm. whatever mm-hmm. you want to look at it, however you want to look at it. Um, at Babel, everyone, um, th- there's a multiplicity that is defined by their um, different languages. They can't understand each other. Mm-hmm. Babel is like, you know, that word for babbling. Mm-hmm. Uh, but then at Pentecost, uh, Everyone understands the apostles in their own language, mm. right? And so this contrast between mm-hmm. uh, multiple languages and then it's interesting. It's not that the apostles are speaking one language and they understand that language. It's that they all understand the apostles in their own language. And mm. so, again, you have that um, reconciliation between the one and the many. Right. Is that even though their cultures and languages are intact, right. they are still unified by the message of the church. Right. So it's not taking, you know, this is an important principle, I think, for us is that um, as we grow closer to God, as we grow closer in community, in unity with the church, we're not losing our, what makes us distinctly individual. We still maintain that, Mm -hmm. um, but it's part of a bigger picture. Um, I think that's one of maybe some apprehensions of um, uh, some forms of Christianity where it's Oh, I, I don't want to be involved in uh, the church because I want to worship in my own way, right? Mm-hmm. Um, like to maintain my individuality. Um, but that's a misunderstanding of what we mean by unity. 
Right. Um, it's not that you just disappear and get like subsumed into mm-hmm. like this, you know, mm-hmm. entity. Um, you remain distinct. Just as the son remains distinct from the father. He is his right. own person. Mm-hmm. Um, but that that's that, you know, while we say that Christ reconciles the the um, tension between the one and the many, um, it is still a mystery. Yeah, right. Like he, he in the same yeah. way that in the same way that um, the the gestalt that um, mm-hmm. appears to us is a mystery. Right. That like we can't explain why this thing emerges as one. Right. Out of the multiplicity. Right. We know that it happens. We know it's like it's parallel to the nature of the Trinity. But like, good luck yeah. solving. Yeah, that yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> okay, that's that's yeah. helpful. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, and that, this is the the Trinity is the ultimate. Um, the ultimate, <laughs> the highest mystery mm-hmm. that the church holds. Uh, it's God himself. Um, and all these things are helpful in coming to glimpse at the nature of the Trinity, but ultimately it, it, it remains a mystery fundamentally. Um, yeah. So, That's yeah. Good. Any other esoteric thoughts, Lee? <laughs> esoteric. <laughs> I, I mean, I, I, I do have some for sure. But I don't, I don't know if I want to get into it here. <laughs> um, well, <clears throat> going back to to Ascension again, and and going to Pentecost, there is uh, I think it highlights pretty well the uh, progression of revelation, because mm. you know critical biblical scholarship will say that um, you know people like Abraham they weren't quite clearly defined as monotheistic quite yet. Um, you know, many of the early Israelites or Hebrews kind of dabbled in some polytheism, and they didn't quite understand how Yahweh fit into all this. Hmm. And I think sometimes that kind of either upsets people, and they're, they're, they think like you know, these critical biblical scholars are trying to like destroy people's faith, <laughs> and or at other times people kind of like clamp down, say that's you know that's just not true or whatever. But I, I think it, it's fair. That um, perhaps you know from Abraham and even prior, you know through the apostles, that there is an ongoing understanding of who God is, um, and that kind of culminates in in the Pentecost. Mm-hmm. That's that's when you do get this kind of fi- this uh, final outpouring of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. and that's when the apostles and and kind of the Judeo Christian tradition finally kind of comes to its culmination. Because I do, I do think that Revelation is uh, unfolding. It doesn't necessarily continue. You know, public Revelation is closed, mm-hmm. um, but there is an unfolding of understanding of what has been revealed. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what the apostles are going through with this, like worship, worshiping but doubting. Um, is that the, that full revelation does not happen in, until Pentecost? Um, I, I think again, even then, with the the unfolding of Revelation, people can be scared of that because it's like. You're saying that like new things will be added, but right. it's not nothing new is being added, and certainly nothing uh, that's ongoing is can contradict what's gone before it. Yes, yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. But there is, a, I think, a progressive understanding that happens throughout the Bible, and so there's no need to be scared. I think of sometimes again critical biblical scholarship mm-hmm. saying that you know perhaps <laughs> the the Egypt or sorry the uh, the Hebrews in Babylon maybe had multiple gods. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, because there's there's also um, what some like intermingling with the religions, you know, like mm-hmm. they're, they're, it's okay to kind mm-hmm. of see some of these problematic issues, but realize that it's a, a progressive, ongoing revelation. Yeah, that's it. Doesn't I think it's John Henry Newman who says it's the the, the, the development of doctrine, right? And he kind of relates. I, I think the image he uses is that of a seed. Um, that when it's developing, the tree looks nothing like the seed, but mm-hmm. when you actually you know, get down to it. It's one of the same and that it just, it develops. And so, you know, people can get hung up on, even like today, I think it's, it's ex- like this issue is extremely prevalent among different sects of Christ- Christianity. Uh, it's like, well, th- you know, this church and all the doctrines look nothing like what Christ preached and how his life was in the early Christian uh, life mm-hmm. of the church was. But there's really nothing, like Lee was saying, there's nothing that we hold as Catholics that contradicts anything in the Gospels or in the New Testament or even into the Old Testament. There's not a contradiction. Mm-hmm. Um, even when Christ was um, 
uh, you know, uh, uh, walking the earth and, and teaching, he, he, he said explicitly that he's come to fulfill the old law, not to contradict it or to squash it. Mm-hmm. And so um, that development of doctrine is a very important thing to understand. Um, it's, it's us who deepens, like the truth is always the same. Right. But it's us who deepen the understanding, and then we can express it in different ways. Right. On simpler terms, if you come to like a deeper understanding of a text or you know a, a book or whatever, it's not like you've rewritten it or changed something. Like mm-hmm. you're 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 just growing in an understanding, like you were saying, Lee. Um, and that might change you, but that doesn't change the text. Yeah. 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 That's good stuff. Um, we're about an hour in. Let's jump to the bonus episode. Um, if you guys want to sign up to hear our weekly bonus episodes, you can go to basicallyrelated.com, sign up. We'll see you next week.